Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you. Soundtrack to the summer. Some psalms, some summer psalms. That's uh, what we're talking about. And if you were here on the uh, first Sunday of this month, which was the 7th, we spoke about Psalm 8, which is a hymn of wonder and praise to God. And on the 14th, that was last Sunday, uh, we uh, talked about Psalm 40, uh, which is a prayer. Um, Today, we're going to look at Psalm 118, which really is a song of thanksgiving. And next Sunday, the last Sunday in, uh, uh, in August, we're going to look at Psalm 140, which is a cry, and it's a cry for protection. So, uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, Psalm 118. We read the beginning section of that psalm and the last section of that psalm uh, just now. That's what Kesselwer read. So, uh, there's a little quiz for you. And, and I, I'm going to... Uh, these are three famous opening lines, okay, from uh, books, all novels, all fiction, okay? Three famous opening lines. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. I'd like you to... You can do this on your own. I'm not forcing you to talk to somebody you don't know or you don't want to know, but this might be a fantastic opportunity to do this. So if you turn around or turn to the people next to you, these aren't going to come up. They're just going to appear for you. you. Number one, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Which book opens with that famous line? Oh, look, yeah, look, you didn't need to talk about that. It was written by Charles Dickens. You're a very bright, intelligent congregation. Okay. Okay, so we're going to make it a little bit more difficult, right? Um, Well, perhaps not a little bit more difficult. Depends. Okay. Here comes another one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune will want, uh, will want to meet a wife. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. Hey, give yourselves a round of applause. You're a very literate audience. You're the kind of audience, a congregation, that would do very well in the library that we just installed. <laughs> Here's another one then. It was a bright cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. You see, someone like this just spoils everything, don't they? 1984, George Orwell. Well, here's another one. This is as famous an opening line. Let me read it to you, then we'll see it. But I just wonder if anyone can guess it. Life is difficult. It is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. Which opening line of which book is that? It's a dead famous book. It's not a novel. (laughs) What of mine? (laughs) Until very recently, this book, uh, it's a non-fiction book, and this book had only been outsold until very recently by one other book in the world. 
and that one other book in the world is the Bible. So is that a clue? It was written in 1978. It's got the same title as a very famous American poem by a completely different author. Uh, I'm exposing your deficiency now, aren't I? So there it is. It was written by the psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck. Have you heard of him? The book, The Road Less Travelled, he wrote it in 1978. He went on to, he was a then unknown man. He went on to write many more books. But The Road Less Travelled, if you've not read it, it's a brilliant book. And if you don't read The Road Less Travelled, you should read the first page. And this, you really should read the first page. It's a life-transforming first page for almost anyone, I should imagine. But this is the opening line, or the opening paragraph. Life is difficult. This is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. There are four great truths of Buddhism. I don't know if you know that. There are four pillars of Buddhism. And the first great truth that the Buddha taught, often, you know, people kind of think, you mentioned the Buddha in a church. I once uh, mentioned Mahatma Gandhi, and I quoted Gandhi in a church, and somebody walked out. (laughs) And they came back at the end still to complain at me, and they said, you quoted a Hindu in a church. It's recognised, of course, that we gather truth from all sorts of places. The Buddha said this, there are four great truths. There are only four great truths, said the Buddha. And the first great truth is this, life is suffering. Life is difficult, it's a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It's a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we understand it and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it's accepted, the fact that it is difficult no longer matters. Life is difficult. We all struggle. We all struggle in life. So, in the light of that, here's the opening line of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. We sang three songs, or perhaps four songs at the beginning of this service together, and they were all filled with praise to God and thanks to God for all his goodness and all the blessings he brings to us. He blesses us all the time. We sang this one, another one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing to him like never before, O my soul, I will worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. Hey, it's time to sing your song again to leap out of bed with a big grin on your face. Whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, I'm going to be singing till the evening comes. I'd like to ask you a question. Is the fact that Psalm 118 begins with these simple words simply a sign that the writer of this psalm, whoever it was, had a superficial view of life? Like so many of those psalms, those songs that write in the middle of our Bible, 
By the way, this psalm is right in the middle of the Bible. That's a technical thing. It's only true. It's only uh, it's only true in a Protestant Bible. But this psalm is the exact middle chapter of the whole Bible, and this verse is right in the middle. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good; His love endures forever. Is that just some kind of superficial junk that teenagers get taught? And by the time people are as old as you, you've come to be rather cynical about that because you know it goes wrong. Is this written simply there because this guy, whoever he was, or this woman, whoever she was, lived in a kind of um, ancient society where nobody had really done philosophy or grappled with life, where they hid themselves away from reality and come out with these trite truisms that actually aren't true? The truth is, of course, in life, like M. Scott Peck said, we all struggle. Um, I was, uh, I, uh, Corny and I came back from holiday uh, a week ago, last Saturday, we came back from holiday, and by the time, uh, th- th- it's a strange thing, um, we were taxiing down the runway, we'd landed at Gatwick, and we'd plainly come into land, and, uh, and this, they've changed their mind, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, British aviation authorities, because they used to say, you cannot turn on your phone until you are safely inside uh, the um, uh, buildings, Do you, yeah? Now when you land, they say, turn your phone on now. It's almost become an order. And so I turned my phone on and the f- we hadn't hit, we hadn't stopped the phone. Uh, they, we were still coming down the runway and all the texts on my phone started arriving and WhatsApps, etc., etc. And by the time the plane had stopped, I was already plunged into the first crisis. And this week has rolled out in exactly that kind of way, crisis after crisis. So do I look at that and go, give thanks to the Lord for his good, his love endures forever. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) If you're that kind of simplistic person who doesn't live a complicated life that I did. The thing about this psalm, though, is this. Most of the psalms, there are 150 in our Bible, are written by a very famous person who Bono once described as the Elvis of the Bible, the great lyricist of the Bible. We come to Bono in a minute, actually. But this psalm wasn't written by, um, I was going to say wasn't written by Bono, wasn't, this psalm wasn't written by King David. David wrote most of the songs. This psalm, we know, wasn't written by King David, and was written not just not by King David, but it was written a long time after King David's life. Brief little history of Israel, which many of you will know. Israel was a, a, a long, thin, na- thin nation reigned over by David, who was like the high point of Israel's life. And then after his death, King Solomon reigned. And after his son, King Solomon reigned, who we always say was wise. But actually, if you read the Bible, wasn't half as wise as he's cracked up to be. The kingdom, which was long and thin and narrow, split into two. And all the northern counties, they were called tribes, but they're counties. The ten northern counties left. Uh, because they got a bad deal and only down south in Jerusalem did anybody earn any money or get rich. Nothing like that could happen today. And um, so, so the ten northern counties left and they did their own thing under their own king. And after um, some hundred years, life began to go wrong in the south because they had luxury and they turned their back on what mattered because luxury tends to do that to you. 
and uh, in the north stuff went wrong because they got this bitter spirit in them and they didn't ever recover from that, from that. And basically, the north was taken over by a superpower of the day called the Assyrians who marched in, wiped them out. And then the Assyrians lost their place in the world to the Babylonians and the Babylonians, a hundred years later, marched into the south part of the country, which was by then called Judea, and they were all sent away into exile. And they were in exile for 400 years. Can you imagine that? You're rolled over. It's like us being rolled over by the Chinese or the Russians or something. All of our freedoms are taken from us. None of us own anything anymore. Half of our families are obliterated. It's like being in Syria today. We have absolutely nothing. We know total misery. We are yanked out of our society. We're made to be slaves in someone else's society. We work for nothing. We die. We have no luxury, no holidays, no nothing. All our symbols and our culture is taken away from us for 400 years. And then those of us who survive are allowed back into the land. That's when this psalm was written. Psalm 118 is written by the return that those who get to return after 400 years of slavery. And this is the opening line. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. We all struggle, but this psalm isn't written out of superficiality. It's not written out of the luxury of our lives. It's written out of pain. It's written out of pain and it's real. It's not superficial. So the first thing is we all struggle. The second thing is this, therefore, which flows quite simply from it, you're not being picked on. It's easy to feel picked on, isn't it? Because your life doesn't run right and stuff has gone wrong for you this week or this year. You're worried about this, your, your housing, your job, your health, your relationships. Stuff's gone wrong. Stuff isn't right at home right now. You're struggling with it all. You don't know how to deal with it. I'm being picked on. Life's not right for me. This is what it is to be human. I'm looking at you and I know you're struggling with life. Why do I know you're struggling with life? Because you're alive and you're human and because I'm struggling with life. And the greatest error we slip into is you think that anybody who stands up at the front of a building like this, especially if they've got reverent in front of their name, must have a life that just sings the whole time. Life is a struggle for us all. It's normal. We sang this song, though. I've referred to it already. I, we referred to this verse. Nathan led us and the band led us as we sang these words. These are the lyrics. Nathan lent me them to me because I've got a memory like a sieve. And um, it, we sang, bless the Lord, O my soul, worship his holy name. Sing like never before, worship his holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. And it's ever so easy to write that off, isn't it? It's that superficial evangelical junk that we should tear up because these people don't know what life's like for us. But we all sang this. These next uh, verse, the last verse actually, verse, um, oh, verse 2 says, You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness I will keep on singing. 10,000 reasons my, for my heart to find. But the last verse says this, and we all sang it. You know, I looked around at you singing this. I did. You know? 
just to check, but you were. You sang. And on that day, when my strength is failing, the end draws near, my time has come, I'm dying. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Have you noticed how people's faith crumbles when stuff goes wrong? I believed in Jesus, but then I lost my job. I believed in Jesus, but then my marriage fell apart. I'm blaming God. Of course, I can't possibly be held accountable at all. But it must be God. I was talking to Nathan earlier, and um, he was telling me about somebody in his uh, youth group when, when he was uh, younger. And this guy in his youth group in the church he was in, uh, he, fancied this, he fancied this woman who was really a uh, girl, who was really good looking, and the girl told him that she didn't fancy him, and he lost his faith in God. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> I mean, as Nathan said to me, you change your entire view of the basis on which the universe is built because some girl doesn't fancy you. There you go. So often what this points to is a superficiality that we've not looked deeply and we've not explored. Uh, the, the reality of the matter is, of course, that people's faith does go when they see someone die, especially when uh, somebody they love dies. Or sometimes when somebody's told that they have a fatal disease, their faith crumbles. Where's God? Where's God? And you get churches that feverishly pray. I remember being uh, associated with a church and somebody in that church was told that she was dying and no one was allowed to speak it. She was dying of cancer and uh, no one was allowed to speak it. And the pastor of the church said that even if someone said that this lady was dying, that was like pronouncing a curse over her. You couldn't say that. And they called for a 24-7 prayer meeting that went on for well over a month and uh, while she slowly died. But you had to believe that she was going to live because it's all about faith and it's all about praying that prayer. It's all about naming the thing that we want and not doubting for a second. And doubt is like a curse and it brings us down. And sometimes, isn't it true, that when stuff goes wrong in your life, you go, what have I done that's wrong? What's God got it in for me for? You know, or if some, you pray for somebody to be healed or healing yourself or you pray for a job and you don't get it, you go, God wasn't listening. You know, what, what's gone wrong? Have, did I pray the wrong words? Did I pray them in the wrong order? Here's the thing. That lady died. She was separated from her family, her church. And the only person she could ever talk to about the fact that she was dying was me. Because I didn't have the faith that she was going to live. I knew she was dying, and she knew she was dying. But here's the wonderful thing about her. Her faith was real. If our faith is as we've just sung, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. If that's true... Is our faith in the fact that God is somehow going to make you supernatural and you're going to live to 500? Or is your faith actually deeper than that? That I live my life now for Christ. And when that day comes, when my strength fails, 
And when I go to the doctor and I'm told I'm dying, then my trust in God will be as strong as it is now. It strikes me that that kind of faith is deeper than the kind of faith that it insists on a miracle at every turn. It's that kind of faith. It's that kind of faith that this verse is all about. Here's a quote from Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs uh, was asked to speak at Samford University. He spoke at the graduation and they gave him a, a, a doctorate. And this was in 1985. And this is a line from his speech, which you can see online. It's worth, um, it's worth listening to. Uh, it really is. But he says this. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking that you have something to lose. You are already naked. Jobs said that, Steve Jobs said that, in the summer of 2000, uh, of, uh, he said that in the summer of, uh, let me get the date right, he said that in the summer of 1985. It, it, the previous autumn, he'd been told that he had terminal cancer. Remembering that you're going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. That's us. And we either live to glorify God in that complexity or not. Uh, lots of people, of course, run away from problems constantly. We all have an inner story, and many people, I'm sure you've realized in your life, are in denial of their inner story. It's too painful to confront the truth about us. It's too painful to deal with what actually is the thing that's in us and drives us. We separate ourselves from the pain of the past. We live in denial almost of who we are. That is a place of ongoing anguish. The only peace anybody can find in life or strength they can find in life is when they deal with the crap, when they deal with the pain, when instead of running away from the difficulties, they confront them. I sat with a married couple this week and uh, we, we talked together and as I talked with them, in their situation, it became clear and it was my job to try and coach this out a little bit, that they'd both been living in denial of who one another actually were. They didn't know each other well. Hey, I'm not pointing any fingers. You know, I've been married for 36 years to Cornelia, who sat there. I know that you have to work at these things, and they are really hard. But I do know that when you live in denial of who you are and you try to run away from your story, you can never reach the place that the psalmist reached, where he can say, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And it's not a load of superficial junk based on never having faced struggle, but it deep truth mind out of struggling through all of these things and so back to M. Scott Peck because that great book also says this the truth is that our finest moments are likely to occur when we're feeling deeply uncomfortable unhappy or unfulfilled 
For it is only in such moments, propelled by our discomfort, that we are likely to step out of our ruts and to start searching for different ways or truer answers. I'll leave you to ponder that for a moment. Read it to yourself. And so it turns out that the psalmist who returns from exile with 400 years of stories of slaughter and oppression, with 400 years of pain and agony, writes these words, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. My question for you is simply, when you sing those words, are they sung out of the superficiality of denying your real story and the real pain and the real struggle of who you are? Because if they are, you will head towards a place when something big goes wrong and you say, why do I believe in this God? How could he have done this for me? Or when you sing these words, are they born out of dealing with your story, your inner story, and knowing that the rock on which you build your life is really this God of love? I'd like to give you a piece of homework if you want it, and it's where Bono comes into things. Um, you too wrote the song. They wrote it, says Bono, in about 40 minutes, which is an extraordinary thing. It's called 40. I don't know if you know their song, 40. They wrote it in the 80s, but they re-recorded it through the years. And it's actually, uh, well, actually, they just had to write the tune because it's the words of Psalm 40, or some of the words of Psalm 40. And uh, it's become one of their anthems. And I'd like to point you, if you've not watched it, to watch it. You can watch it on YouTube. If you type in uh, U, um, U2 40 Chicago, they do, on, the, on what the, a tour they were doing, they do this in a number of centres, but there's a great video of uh, this in Chicago. Bono stands on stage and he sings these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. And then he sings and the audience starts singing too because they know the song. I will sing, sing a new song. I will sing, I will sing a new song. And the whole audience chants, I will sing, sing a new song. They're worshipping, I will sing, sing a new song. And then Bono sings, how long to sing this song? How long to sing this? How long to sing this song? How long to sing this song? This song is a song of pain, but I will sing a new song. And a new song will be a song of joy. I will sing a new song. How long to sing this song? I have faith. I will sing a new song. And as um, the edge plays his guitar and the song begins to fade, Bono picks up a giant searchlight. It's worth watching. And he holds this searchlight. And slowly he pans round with the searchlight on this vast audience and he shines the searchlight at different people in the audience. The symbolism, of course, is that when God's light comes to descend on your darkness, your darkness and your suffering and your pain is transformed and you will sing a new song when you step into the light of Christ who brings hope even into the darkest moment. And then as the last bars of the song are played out by the edge, um, 
that Bono takes um, a rosary that he's wearing round his neck off and he places it on his mic stand with the cross hanging there. And he walks off stage leaving people looking at the cross. It's the cross that brings hope, that brings light into our darkness. And that's why we have this cross of light here. That's why we chose to have it here. It's a cross of light. It's not wooden, it's light. This light lightens your darkness. It transforms your deepest moment. It transforms your greatest agony. It transforms your deepest longings. That is the hope on which I have built my life. Jesus once said, don't build on the sand, build on the rock. The wise man or the wise woman is someone who builds on the rock. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Cling to this cross of light. God bless you.